0: Because you are worthy and there is no one else who is worthy. There is no one else or no thing that we would desire to give our worship to more than you. Now, Lord, speak through the preaching of your word. May your word not return void as it promises. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is Memorial Day weekend, and so thank you to those... uh, Some of you here have family members who paid the ultimate price for the freedom that we celebrate this weekend. And so thank you for your sacrifice as a family. And and many of you here were willing to pay that price. And for whatever reason, the Lord did not require that of you. And we also say thank you for your service. If you're a guest or maybe it's your first time or you've been here several times, starting next Sunday during this hour, you can come to the 930 hour. And then at the 11 o'clock hour, we have our next steps class. And, and what this is, it's just a few weeks long, and it's for those who are interested in knowing what, what the next steps are at Eastwood. What does it look like to be a member of Eastwood? What do we believe? What do we value? What do we hold true? Um, how you can plug in and be a part of what God's doing. And so that starts next week. That's also part of our a new member—it's uh, a new member requirement to go through next steps. And so, if you've recently joined the church and have not been through next steps yet, then I would encourage you to start that next Sunday. Every other month, we offered here, and then the next month we offered at South Campus. And so, it constantly rotates. If if you couldn't make all four of the classes, that's fine. You can always make up one of the classes later. All that we ask is if you're going to start, that you start on week one. All right. We're in a series entitled "Radical: The Hard Sayings." Of Jesus. The heart saying of Jesus today is where he says the last will be first. The first will be last. Take your Bibles and open them to Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 begins in verse 1. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. In my Bible it's the entire passage is in red which tells us it's the words of our Lord Jesus. So Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus speaking, said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise each received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend... I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? So, the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. So let's recap. There's a landowner has a vineyard. It's 6 a.m. and he goes out looking for workers because he needs folks to work in his vineyard and he hires some. Going to pay them a denarius a day. Well, he realizes he doesn't have enough workers, and so he goes back out at nine in the morning and hires more and just tells them he'll pay them what is right. And at noon, he does the same thing. At three, he does the same thing. And then at five in the afternoon, he goes out and he finds some guys that are standing there, and he says, why have you been standing here all day? And they said, well, nobody hired us. He said, well, go work in the vineyard, and I'll pay you what's right at the end. And so they go, and he begins to pay from the ones who were hired last to the ones who were hired first. And as as they all get the same thing, the the 6 a.m. workers begin to complain. Those who did the least amount of work were paid the exact same as those who did the, the most. In the parable, the owner of the vineyard said, it's my vineyard, it's my money, and I'll do with it what I want to do. Now, let me just be honest and transparent with you here. This parable has always bothered me a little bit. I mean, it it just has. I've never really, I mean, think about it. Do you think it's fair that somebody who works 12 hours gets the same pay as somebody who works one hour? In our way of thinking, that's just not right, and so this has bothered me when when I've read it. Do you think, I don't think it's fair, but God does. The title of today's sermon is, Life is Not Fair, and That's a Good Thing. Life is not fair, and that's a good thing. See, my problem begins from the very beginning, from verse 1. My problem is when Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like... So the whole parable is not about vineyards and landowners and workers. It's about the kingdom of heaven. And so that's really why I have a problem. If it was just about vineyards and landowners and wages, I wouldn't think that much about it. But Jesus says it's about the kingdom of heaven, and that's where it kind of rubs me a little bit. I mean, God's the landowner, right? That's not a, that's not a uh, trick question, all right? God's the landowner, and that makes us the laborers in the vineyard. And so knowing that, then, makes this seem less than right or fair. And so the question is, is God fair? Well, the Word of God says in Psalm 99, 4, the king, talking about God, is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. Psalm eighty-nine fourteen, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So God's Word clearly affirms that God is fair whether we think he is or not. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through a little bit of the passage this morning, and then I want to give you some positive life application and some cautions about life application so that when you leave here, you'll understand completely what it is, I hope, that the Lord God is saying to you through this passage. All right? The first thing I want to draw your attention to is what I call God's reward. God's reward. I think part of the understanding of this parable is that it is never too late to accept Christ. As long as you are breathing, as long as there is life in your body, you have the ability to be saved. See, the 6 a.m., the 9 a.m. workers, those represent a lot of us. Those of us who came to Christ when we were early in age, and we have served God faithfully for many years. We're the, we're the earlier workers. And, and that would be most of us because 80% of people that come to faith in Christ do so before they were 18. How many of you here were saved before your 18th birthday? Hold up your hand. I mean, look around, church. It's, it's true here. That's why we put such an emphasis. That's why we started the South Campus in hopes of reaching young families with school aged children because the best opportunity to see somebody come to faith in Christ is as a child. Now, it's not impossible for adults. It's just statistically not nearly as often as it is for those who are children. There are those who are saved late. They call them deathbed conversions. I mean, the two two thieves at the cross, right? One of them ridiculed Jesus. The other one put his faith in him. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so the man is just hours from death. And the Lord says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. As long as there's life, it's not too late to accept Christ guy by the name of Jeff Stratton pastors the Southport Baptist Church in Indianapolis. He was pastoring in Evansville before he went there. And in October of 2002, he was asked to visit a 92-year-old man by the name of Adolf Allen who was in the hospice center dying with cancer. When he went in and introduced himself to Adolf Allen, Allen readily admitted right up front that he had not lived a very good life. He had been mean. He had drank way too much. He had been mean just, not just to, to foes but to friends and to family. And, and within two minutes of coming through the door, he asked the pastor this question. He said, is it fair that somebody has lived their whole life contrary to God and at the last minute asked to be saved and get saved? pastor thought about it for a moment, and he looked at him, and he says, No, Adolf, it's not fair. But luckily for you and me, he said, God is not fair. Stratton shared the plan of salvation with Adolf Allen at 92 years old. There in a hospice bed, he bowed his head and prayed to accept Christ. Four weeks later, November the 11th, 2002, Stratton preached Allen's funeral. And at the funeral, he used an illustration of a football game that had recently happened, it's called the bluegrass miracle now if you are a kentucky fan it was less than a miracle for you you remember it most likely what happened was kentucky took the lead over number 14 lsu 30 to 27 with a, with 11 seconds left on the clock lsu was coached by nick satan i, I mean saban freudian slipped there and uh, So so as they take the lead with 11 seconds left, Kentucky douses their coach, Guy Morris, with Gatorade. I mean, the game's over, right? LSU gets one first down after the kickoff. There's two seconds left on the clock. Jamarcus Russell, the quarterback for LSU, is called to the sideline, and he's told, throw the ball as far as you can. Just throw it as far as you can. Well, as he throws the ball, there's blue jerseys all around And the ball is batted and juggled. And somehow, Devery Henderson, a wide receiver for LSU, catches the ball. Touchdown. Now, the Kentucky fans, not realizing that he had scored a touchdown, they're trying to tear down the goalpost, even though LSU has won the game. There are 3,600 seconds in a football game. And it seems unfair that in the last two seconds, One team steals a victory from the other team. And here's how he applied that story to that funeral. The pastor said, and I quote, Well, today it is heaven that rejoices and hell that agonizes. Satan let one slip away. With one one one-thousandth of the contest remaining on the clock, the ball is thrown." It's tipped once by a chaplain at Southwest Indiana Hospice, tipped again by the pastor at American Baptist East. He juggles it once, twice, and the ball comes safely to rest in the arms of Jesus. The crowd goes wild. 92 years. It just doesn't seem fair, but there is rejoicing today in heaven. It doesn't matter what the scoreboard said. For 92 years, it only mattered what it said last Saturday. And last Saturday, it read, God won. Satan, zero. God's reward. He gives to us at any moment when we call on his name, salvation. Maybe today you're not a Christ follower. Maybe you're saying, well, you know, someday. Maybe, you know, maybe if, I, if I'm in a hospice on my deathbed, then I'll get saved. The only problem with that logic is there are more salvations out of bed than there are in bed and you never know when your life will come to an end and so don't count on coming to faith in Christ late the parable is about god's reward of grace it's it's not how you live for 10 20 40 50 75 92 years he'll save you if you call on his name that's not fair that's grace god's reward let me point out the second thing to you man's relationship when you respond to the lord jesus christ and put your faith in him is salvation all that you get at the end of the work day every worker got the exact same thing a denarius now all of us in god's family get the exact same thing what is it if you say salvation that's the wrong answer okay that's a byproduct of what we get what we get is a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's what every one of us get, all right? That, that's our relationship. Do you remember at the cross, we emphasize the wrong thing in that statement. When the, when the thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and, and Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, we want to focus on the word paradise when the important words are with me. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Friend, I submit to you that wherever Jesus is, that's paradise. It's about having a personal relationship with him. Now, you, you may be like me. You read this story and you chafe at the thought of people getting equal pay. Philip Yancey's is an author and he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he talks about this parable and he hits the nail on the head because we don't, we don't think it's fair, but listen to what he says. He he addresses my problem with this passage. And I quote, The workers' discontent aroused from the scandalous mathematics of grace. They would not accept that their employer had the right to do what he wanted with his money when it meant paying scoundrels 12 times what they deserved. Many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers, and the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. Yancey says we we risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. If paid on the basis of fairness, Yancey says we would all end up in hell. The wages of sin is death, right? Right? I mean, if if God gave wages, we all would end up in hell. How, How did Jesus describe eternal life? Did he just say it's forgiveness of sins? In John 17, verse 3, here's what he said. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the purpose of salvation is that we can know God and that we can know Jesus Christ, the Son So, third, let's talk about God's reign. God's sovereign. What does that mean? God has a right to do whatever he wants to do, right? I mean, do you believe God's sovereign? Say amen. Amen. Yeah, that's a good place for an amen right there. And so in verse 13, these 12-hour workers complain. And the landowner reminds them, you agreed to this. Look at verse 13, but he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? If you go back and read it in verse 2, they didn't go out into the field until they knew for sure what their wages were going to be. They're the only ones who knew what they would be paid. None of the others knew. And so he says, I'm just doing what I agreed to do, what you agreed to. Now, some of you would say, you know, I'd never run my business that way. I'd never pay somebody The saying that worked one hour that worked 12 hours and god says you know what you're right you wouldn't run your business that way because you're not me isaiah 55 god says for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways," says the lord he says you wouldn't run your business that way i get that for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts see grace teaches us it teaches us that God will do for others what we would never do for them. I mean, this, this, this parable is about the, the, the landowner being willing to do for somebody else what we, as fellow workers, would never do for them. I mean, God made it all. He can do as he, as he wishes. If, if we were the ones doing the saving, we'd save the not-so-bad first, right? Right? You know, we'd say, okay, let's begin with the good moral people. You know, the people that turn their taxes in, that don't cheat, don't steal. You know, good, hardworking, honest. That's who we would start with. But God starts with the adulterers and addicts. And we're like, what? That doesn't seem right. See, grace costs everything to the one who gives it and nothing to the recipient. Do you understand that? Grace costs everything to the one who gives the grace and nothing to the one who receives it. Grace does not compute with a sense or desire for for fairness. Why does Jesus teach this parable? I think the answer is found in the previous chapter. There in verse 16 of chapter 19, there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, well, keep all the commandments. And he says, well, you know, I've been doing every one of those commandments since I was a boy. Jesus said, fine, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the scripture ends there in that passage with verse 22. It says, he went away sorrowful, for he had great many possessions. Well, it tells us the Lord's going to keep every command and, and, you know, as I think about this, there's a little bit of Simon. Look, look down a little bit, because Simon Peter responds in verse 27. Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, he's saying that in response to what the, the rich young ruler said had been told. Sell everything you have, come, follow me. And Peter says, well, we've done that, so what do we get? And to be honest, you know, there's Simon Peter and me. I mean, that's why I don't care for this parable because I'm thinking, Lord, we have left all to follow you, so what do we get? Grace means that no one is too bad to be saved. God specializes in that. But it also means that grace sometimes means there are people too good to be saved. The rich young ruler was too good to be saved. I've done all those commands, and so I, I don't need to do any more. Friend, you are not too bad to be saved. God specializes in saving really bad people. Let me ask you, is there anything in your past that you would not want somebody to stand up in church today and air that in public? Shake your head like this. We, we all have it, right? I mean, we do. We, we all have those things that we would not want anyone to know about God knows all about it, and he still offers grace, grace that is greater than our sin. And so this parable is about the fact that it is never too late in life to accept Christ. It's about the fact that salvation is about having a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. It's about the fact that God is sovereign, and it is his prerogative to do with grace as he chooses. Fourth, let's talk about man's reaction. The 12-hour workers complain because they get, or or the one-hour workers get the same as what they get. If you're a boss at work, why don't you tell all of your employees what everybody else makes? I mean, if you're a principal, why don't you tell all of the teachers what all of the other teachers make? For the president at Western, why don't you tell all of the professors what every other professor makes? Because that creates a toxic environment. You don't want everybody to know because not everyone is treated equally. Right? Anyone in Bible that you can think of, complain about the extravagance of God's grace? A couple people come to my mind. Jonah, right? Jonah's told to go preach to repentance to Nineveh, repent or perish, and he ends up there very reluctantly, and I say reluctantly. He didn't have much choice in the matter. Once the fish swallowed him and took him, right? And so at the end of chapter 3, he preaches a one-sentence sermon God says, repent or perish. The greatest revival in the history of mankind, it tells us that all 100,000 people that lived there were saved. I mean, everyone was saved. And so, chapter 4 begins this way in the book of Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and aboveing, abundant in loving kindness. See, he's complaining that God's grace was the same for the Ninevites as it was for him. That they were getting in the same way he got in. The parable of the prodigal son, right? I call it the parable of the prodigal sons because neither, neither son was right they were both prodigals the one goes and spends all of the his estate the the inheritance that he would get on the bible says righteous living on wild living he realizes man i'm starving to death he goes home he says father I, i repent i've sinned against you and and so i'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me as one of your hired servants and the father says look bring out the ring bring the sandals bring the robe my son has come home kill the fatted calf and let's have a party. And the older brother refuses to go in. He said, It's not fair. I've been serving you all this time, and the younger brother goes and lives wildly, comes home, and he gets the same thing I get. He gets the same amount of grace I get. You say, It's not fair, preacher. No, it's not. It's grace. So let me give you some positive life applications, some some ways to help you understand this passage that you can leave with. First, grace is a gift. If the last workers had had worked and done 12 hours worth of work in one hour, it would be fine. We'd not even be having this discussion. If they had the ability to do 12 hours of work in in one hour, that would make sense, but that's not how Jesus tells this. See, we identify with the first... Most of us identify with the first-hour Christians because we think, man... God, I've been serving you. I signed up to work in vacation Bible school. I'm I'm going on children's camp. I'm I'm working in the nursery. I'm singing in the choir. I'm doing all of these things. That's us. And God's pay scale baffles us. But friend, God dispenses gifts, not wages. The wages of sin is death. But. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is a gift. None of us deserve it. Listen to me, friend. There are two things you need to understand about the grace of God. One, there is nothing you can do today to make God love you any less than what he loves you right now. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than what he loves you right now. He loves you first application grace is a gift secondly grace makes us equal it makes us equal Have you ever I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand but have you ever felt inferior to other Christians I mean these 12-hour workers they begin to feel a little bit in, inferior or assume that the other one was inferior because because what they say is they tell the landowner you made them equal to us they're not equal to us they are inferior to us was the implication and in verse 11, when it says they complained to the landowner, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they complained and kept on complaining like a broken record. I mean, over and over and over and finally the landowner says, enough, look, it's my field, it's my money, and I'm going to do what I want to. And, and he says, by the way, you agreed to this? See, we want God to give grades, like in school, so, so that, you know, we might get an A minus and other people might just barely skate in with a D minus. You know, it's, it's really not passing. I mean, they're this close to hell, but hey, they got in. That's the way we would look at it, and that's what we desire. We think that we deserve grace and get upset when God gives it to others. I mean, you ever said, I hope they get what they deserve. I mean, we see a mass murderer or a child abuser, and we say, man, I hope they get what's coming to them. Friend, if we got what's coming to us, we would be in hell when we die. I mean, that's what we deserve. Those hired at 5 p.m. spent the day watching others get hired. They knew that they weren't going to be able to buy food for their family. They knew that they weren't going to have any income. This story shows God's compassion on those who are forgotten. It was customary. The best workers were picked first. The leftovers, the least skilled were those at 5 p.m. Nobody wanted them. Friend, you and I are not the 6 a.m. workers. You and I are the 5 p.m. workers. We are those who are least. I mean, what do we have to offer the Lord? Does God want our intellect? You know, does God say, man, you are so brilliant. I'm glad you're on my team because I didn't think of that. Does, does God need our gifts? Does He need our money? He owns the kettle on a thousand hills. I mean, what do we have to offer to God that He needs? Nothing. We're those five o'clock workers. Our confidence today should not be in what we have or do not have or do or don't do because on that last day, there is no distinction between ditch diggers and deacons. There is no distinction between prostitutes and preachers. It's all about do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No one is worthy of salvation. We are all unworthy. Grace is a gift. Grace makes us equal. Third, grace allows a fresh start. There are no first places and last places with God. No one's any better than anyone else here. That's what makes this radical. Jesus says the first... Are going to be last and the last are going to be first. Why? Because we're all equal and we all got a fresh start. Why does Jesus put it in reverse order? Because it, place doesn't matter to God. There is no first place with God. There is no last place with God. Grace is not about starting points. It's about having a fresh start. It's not about finishing first. Do you, do you want a fresh start today? Do you ever wish your life could start over? It can Through the grace of God, God will give you today a fresh start, but by faith, you must receive it. So there's the positive life application. Now let me give you some cautions from this passage. Number one, avoid trying to bargain with God. It's a dangerous thing to try to bargain with God. So we've got the 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m. workers. The 6 a.m. workers, look at verse 2. They didn't start until they knew Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. They knew right up front, here's what you get. And it was a fair wage because a denarius a day was the same wage that a Roman soldier made. So, you know, they get hired to work in a vineyard as day laborers. And they're thinking, man, we're getting the same thing a Roman soldier gets. This is generous. This is fair. And so they go to work. Starting with the 9 9 a.m. workers, the landowner just says, I'll pay you what's right. At the end of the day, he calls the steward in verse 8, says, now pay them beginning with the last to the first. The 6 a.m. folks are the only ones who bargained with the Lord. Here's the point. You You can implicitly trust God because God is always good and generous. More than what we deserve. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God is always good and just. And so don't bargain with him. You're always going to get more than what you deserve. All right. Caution number two, avoid comparing yourselves to others. Why were the 6 a.m. guys out at 6 a.m.? trying to get hired right they needed to make some money the landowner promises them and so they go to work and so when the payday comes and the steward says those of you who were hired at 5 p.m come over here and they get a denarius at that point the text doesn't tell us but i am confident that the 12-hour guys are paying attention did you see that i got a denarius for one hour Man, we might get 12. We might get 12 since they got one. And then the 3 p.m. guys come, and they get a denarius, and the noon guys come, and they get a denarius, and by now the, the air, the joy is let out of the 12-hour guys because they realize everybody's getting the exact same thing. They made the deal. They had joy as they worked. They, they only got upset when they compared themselves to others. When they said, you know, it's not fair how he's blessing them and treating us the same. Do we ever do that? Do we ever compare ourselves to others? Preachers do it. Southern Baptist Convention's coming up in a couple of weeks and still haven't decided if I'm actually going to drive out to Dallas or not. But if I do, I would see preacher friends of mine and preacher discussion kind of goes like this. Tell me about your church. How many of y'all running now? How many did you baptize last year? And, and so preachers begin to compare. And, 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 and you know, we, we kind of say, you know, God, it's not fair, man. I'm a better preacher than that guy. <laughs> He's got a bigger church than me. Do, do men ever do that? What's the first question that one man asks another? What do you do? Right When you're introduced, you say, what do you do? And then you begin to place a monetary value based on your understanding of what the person does. And you realize that as the world looks at it, you have a more significant job, and yet that person has a nicer car and a bigger house. And you say, man, that's not fair. What about ladies? Do ladies ever do that? She's thinner than I am. She got a nicer dress on than I have. I don't even have a dress that looks that good in my closet. She's prettier than I am. Do young people ever do this? Well, this person's got, they're more popular than I am. They they have more friends than I do. They're, They're more accepted than I am. What is the result when we compare ourselves to others? In verse 15, they became envious. Landowner said, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? He's saying that they were envious. We live in an age of entitlement where where many today think they are entitled to certain things. Friend, we are not entitled to anything when it comes to God. Nothing. He does not owe us a thing. He gives to us, though, because he's good and he's gracious and he's kind. The third thing, and I'll be done, avoid being ungrateful. When the 12-hour workers complain, it shows that they are ungrateful for what they got. Their their serving in the field now became a burden where it had been a blessing all day long as they thought about the fact they were making the same amount as a Roman soldier. So the blessing became a burden. Now, in the vineyard, I am confident that they they all worked in the vineyard, but they all didn't do the same job. I'm confident there were some who picked fruit There were some who hauled bushels of fruit away. There were probably some gophers who just went and and, and they went for whatever the person that was picking the fruit needed. So, So they all were working there doing different jobs and yet they all had something to do. This isn't about what they did. It's about the attitude they did it with. Let me break it down for us here i just pick on the choir because they were just up here, Brother Dana. See, two people can sing in the choir, and they can sing the exact same song. And one person does it with a heart of gratitude towards God for all that he's done for them. And God receives it. Another person can sing the exact same song and may even sing it better than the person with the heart of gratitude, but they've got a rotten heart, and God doesn't receive it. And so we should avoid being ungrateful the landowner, was he pleased with the 6 a.m. guys? Absolutely. He says, verse 14, take what's yours. But they worked all day, and they had no pleasure because they had a bad heart. As I was thinking about that today, I read a little devotional from another pastor. This pastor tells about, and I'm closing with this story, he tells about um, out jogging one day, and he was in that pastor mode of comparing himself to other pastors, and He felt like the Holy Spirit inside of him impressed him with this question. What about John Spurgeon? He had finished reading Charles Haddon Spurgeon's biography. You know, the famous preacher in London. His father was John, who was also a pastor and the son of a pastor. And today, no one would know the name John Spurgeon had he not had a famous son named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So the Holy Spirit said, What about John Spurgeon? Would you be content with just being John? As he thought about that, he thought about the hundreds, thousands of pastors who had walked faithfully with God where God had placed them. They had shepherded their flock with little or no no notice by the world. And so he asked the question, and I was forced to ask the question of myself today would I be willing to serve if I never received any recognition? I want to be able to say yes. I want to be able to say certainly. I want to be faithful to the Lord in my personal walk, in shepherding God's flock. Listen to me, friend. There is not a single person that ever gets to heaven and God says, well done, thou good and famous servant. When Spurgeon, when Charles Haddon Spurgeon got there, I don't believe he heard, well done, good and famous servant. If he heard anything, he heard good and faithful servant, all right? If God makes you or me as famous as Charles Haddon Spurgeon in whatever job path we are on, that is his business, not ours. If he chooses to do that, that's up to him. Our business is to be as faithful as John Spurgeon, that when we're gone, even if no one knows our name, God does, and he can say, well done, faithful servant. Father, I thank you for your word which is true and I thank you that it teaches us some very important principles today about your grace. Lord, coming in, I wanted to identify as one of those 6 a.m. or at the least 9 a.m. workers. But the more I looked at this passage, the more I realized I'm a 5 p.m. worker. That I am blessed beyond measure because you are a good and a generous and a gracious God. God, I pray for those who are here today and maybe they've been in the trap of comparing themselves to others. Lord, help them to understand that God made them, that you made them uniquely them, that no one else is like them. God, may we be content in who you made us to be. God, I don't don't want to be better than Steve Ayers or Jason Pettis. I simply want to be the best Tom James that I can be. God, may that be the desire of all of us, just to be the best that we can be. For those today who have never experienced your grace, they may have a church membership, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I pray that today would be the day that they're born again, that by faith, In Christ, they receive your grace. God, have your will now in every heart and life in this invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today, if you've been saying in your spirit, you know, God, it's not fair.